0: The following podcast is an Embassy Row production.
1: Hi guys, it is Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker in New York and with me is my great friend and co-host Tom Astor. How are you doing, buddy?
2: Very well, yeah. We're all good here in England, you know, coming out of the lockdown. I don't know if we're going to go back into it anytime soon, but yep. Yeah.
1: You're looking very dapper, Tom. You're looking very dapper, despite lockdown. You look like sort of Michael Caine, if I may say.
2: Do you know something? I'm wearing the same spectacles as he wore on Chris file, so you're not, you know, far. That might be what's doing it. Modelling yourself on Michael Caine, are we? Not necessarily, I think not know. Just thinking, you yeah, know. Yeah.
1: Now you've gone red, I love it. I didn't know I could actually make you blush. I've just
2: got out of a hot bath.
1: Well, it's a little it's bit a little... too much information, Tom. I'm not sure that we really need, all need to know about that. But anyway, <laughs> that, that, now I've got a whole nother vision. Completely yeah. naked Tom Astor. Ah. Well, wow. OK, well, let's before we get on to that booze news, let's just get straight into booze news and change the subject. What have you got for us, Tom?
2: Rum. Is rum the next gin? Now, gin spent the last kind of eight years or 10 years, you know, these little gin distilleries have been evolving and becoming very popular. Gin has been the fashionable drink. Monkey 47. Monkey 47. And rum is tipped to be the next gin. At the moment, the problem with rum as rum makers here it, is it's represented by the price. So it's all represented by the kind of lower end of the market, the mass produced stuff. And the total worldwide sales of standard rum rose just 0.6% by volume between 2014 and 19, whereas high-end rum, I'm talking about any rum over $28 a bottle, grew by 8.3%.
1: If I may say, you keep referring to rum being the next gin, but in many ways, I see rum almost more like tequila, right? Because if you think of tequila, tequila, like you just said, it was connected with price. Tequila used to be, we all got drunk on tequila when we were young, right? Tequila was that drink you had in a bar, tequila slammer, it was always cheap and it always made you feel like hell. Rum is kind of similar, right? I remember one of the first yeah. times I got drunk in Spain with my brother, and we had a crazy time. It was rum and coke, which is a horrible, yeah. sweet, nasty drink. As so everyone has this terrible... thought When you think of rum, it's like, oh, I remember when I was a kid and I got drunk.
2: It's a bit like tequila. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you was 17, you drank too much, of it, and he felt like hell. And that, that is the problem with the lower-rank mass-produced stuff. And that's actually been quoted by these high-end producers as, you know, there's got this terrible association. But these high-end guys are really producing some amazing marks, and they're on the up. I mean, the only thing I would say, the only kind of thing that, that's relevant, I suppose, to the days we're living in at the moment is the rum is inextricably linked. the slave trade in the caribbean because it was the slaves who actually discovered the molasses that you distilled the molasses to make the alcohol true so actually it's a creation and an invention of slavery back in the 18th century um 17th 18th century in the caribbean now while everyone's busy tearing statues down Mm -hmm. i haven't heard much about boycotting rum and i don't know if it'll get to that point
1: however i tell you one of the reasons why potentially it might not is because it is many of the Caribbean countries, which obviously are black, that produce the rum. Now, I'm not sure who owns the rum in those countries, but one might also be boycotting companies now that are, are owned and uh, making money in Caribbean countries, right? So, and also don't forget that rum is also made in India and in the Philippines and- in, you know, Australia. In Australia, so anywhere where they made sugar, basically. Sugar cane was a, yeah. was a big product you're going to find rum and it was of course a drink of sailors and i remember my grandfather always talking about having a a bit of rum and navy rum that dark rum is still produced by many of the big manufacturers and it it was a staple in fact there was a, a portion a ration of rum was given to every sailor every day and that only stopped in 1970. So yeah, that went on for 1850 to 1970. Sailors were rationed rum uh, in large part because they would mix it <laughs> with all the citrus fruits, right? Which would ward off scurvy, which of course, yeah. you know, is it, not, is it? I love all this sort of history because it really talks to where these alcohols come from, where these drinks come from. Now on that note, Will rum become the new gin? It's hard to say because gin has so many botanicals, there's so many ways to change it up, right? There's so many different flavor profiles. You don't quite have that with rum. What you do have though, and again, not to link rum to gin because I, I get it. I understand gin is the sort of new thing and tequila was back in the day as far as becoming the big new drink. However, I always see rum being more similar to a whiskey. Because of the, you know, what gives rum that flavor is the the oak barrels that it is, you know, fermented in and and, and what have you, aged in, rather. And that is very similar to a whiskey. And I think you'll find that a lot of people who enjoy rum enjoy whiskey. So they're really going after the whiskey audience, you know, and, and trying to get people to up their game when it comes to buying rum. Not the cheap rums, but the old rums. On that note, I'm drinking a mojito. Yeah. (laughs) So cheers. Um, I just made it. I made a rather different, uh, unusual one. I love mojitos, right? Real summer drink made with rum, of course. White rum in this case. And you know what? White rum is definitely the most popular. It gets the most love. However... I think if you're going to drink high-end rum, it's really about the dark rums, isn't it? They're the ones with the flavor. White rum is used because it doesn't affect the color profile of your cocktail. Cocktail's going to look great. And in this particular instance, it's made with fresh lime juice that I squeezed just a second ago. And it's one and a half ounces or a jigger and a half of white rum to a jigger of lime juice. And uh, first of all, you put the lime juice with the mint and you muddle it uh, with a little bit of um, simple syrup you know, in the shaker. Then I added the rum, shook it up over ice, poured it out. And you, know, just, you still got little bits of the mint in the whole drink, and that's because of the muddling. The muddling is a big stick, right, that you mix it all up with. Then you just top it off with soda water to give it a little fizz and a little buzz. And actually just one little tip here, I used chocolate mint my garden so it has a really nice little chocolatey flavor to it what are you drinking
2: then normally the bits in it shouldn't be there but next time get your wife to make it for you no thank you i like the bit i'm fond of a
1: little bit here and there we'll have a cleaner drink and what are you drinking old boy
2: i'm drinking nothing to do wrong at all i'm drinking an elderflower collins which is a sour cocktail you know usually gin lemon juice a bit of sugar and the reason i've picked this drink is because the elderflower it's basically gin elderflower freshly squeezed lemon juice and soda water and sugar syrup. But what I'm drinking today is I'm not putting elderflower liqueur in, I'm putting elderflower cordial in, which I will hold up. Nice. Which is from a place called, it looks like it's spelled Belvoir, but it's called pronounced Beaver, which is the home of the Duke of Dutch, Rutland. And this is the most widely sold elderflower cordial in this country and- In the UK. In the UK. And I was listening to the radio the other day, and I was talking, and the man who produces this stuff on the estate at this castle was telling the story of how it came about. And apparently the farm manager's wife was busy making the cordial for anyone who wanted it, who worked on the place. And one day, my great-grandmother, Nancy, happened upon this lady, because she'd heard about her great elderflower cordial, and gave her her recipe, which this farm manager's wife then started using. So great-granny's recipe.
1: Wait a second, are you trying to take claim to the, to the recipe? Did she did no. you steal your grandmother's I, recipe? I, Is that what's happening?
2: No, so she gave it to them, but we don't unfortunately get any royalties from it. It would be very handy if we did.
1: Oh, for goodness sakes. Well, there you go, there you have it. And, and by the way, I'm very fond of the Saint-Germain elderflower cocktail. Very, very good. The Saint-Germain, very delicious, uh, which is a brand new kind of drink, in my opinion. It sort of got invented in the 2000s in south of France. But it's, it's really very, very delicious. And by the way, Elderflower Cordial, for those of you who aren't in the know, is very much a spring-summer drink, as in Elderflower co- comes into season about a month ago, really, about a, you know, sort of, yeah, yeah. I don't know, mid-May, April-May time is when it's really picked and harvested. So it's certain drinks. I like like my vegetables to eat them in season and to drink them in season. So cheers. And we have a very, very exciting guest today. Someone who I have met once, very briefly, but he's made a huge impression on me and I've been following him ever since, literally all over the world. Our guest today is a rather special gentleman. Actually, I'm looking at him and for those of you who obviously can't see what I'm doing or see what I'm looking at, Our guest today looks like I'm I'm speaking to him from a prison cell, which I hope is not the case, because the place he's in, uh, if you've seen any of the movies of prison cells from the place he's in, and it all all will be revealed in just a second, it's really quite scary. Midnight Express. Sorry, did I say something? Um, Our guest today is the quintessential Renaissance man, an extreme adventurer. The host and executive producer of multiple knockout adventure and travel shows like Expedition Asia, Extreme Treks and Tough Rides, coming to us from
0: Istanbul. Meet the man who is basically living the dream, Ryan Pyle. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm, I'm blushing. That was a beautiful introduction. I, I'm honored to be here.
1: Well, Istanbul, my friend, tell me you're not speaking to us from a prison cell because that gray background is rather depressing.
0: I'm not, but it's all I could find on the internet and uh, on the internet shipping here, but I'm doing great. I'm in a lovely apartment. I've uh, I've been here now for more than 110 days. I've got a big story behind that. I don't know if you want me to get into it now or we can save it till later. Well,
1: I love the fact that you're already counting the days because when you're in prison, that's what one does, isn't it? You get a little pen or like you scratch the wall and you kind of draw a line through it. And by the way, every time I ask you, you put your hands up as if you're about to be arrested. So again, we'll get to all that. But before we do, what are you drinking, Ryan?
0: I am drinking a uh, Belvani 18 single malt whiskey out of a Turkish teacup because it's all I have in the apartment that I've rented.
1: So that is what it is. I have been watching Ryan, by the way, he does these things called COVID calls. I think almost yep. on a daily basis, it seems like he's on all the bloody time. In fact, I've never known anyone to be so live, clearly, desperately trying to connect with the outside world on his COVID calls. But you've been yep. drinking these whiskeys, which in what I thought were sort of test tubes or something. I'm like, what is this weird little glass that he has?
0: It's, uh, yeah, it's just a Turkish teacup. Um, I don't know how to explain it, but this it is a, like a, a very- like a thread speaker. It does almost, but you'll find a lot, of, uh, a lot of men and women in the city, they'll be drinking their tea out of these. And my, the house that I rented uh, here in Istanbul, because I've been here for several months, um, they're full of them. And they don't have a proper whiskey dram glass or anything like that. And I, I quite like them. They're quite stylish. So I went with it. I hope I'm not offending anyone.
1: No, but you do need to be careful because when you have to understand that the rest of the world doesn't always know that you're in Turkey, right? So mm. what they do see is you holding a little science vial, like a little, looks <laughs> like a test tube. And it looks like you might be drinking a urine sample. If oh, okay, by urine, accident. I'm like, yeah. oh no, what's happening to Ryan? Has it got that bad? But no, of course, it is in fact an 18-year-old whiskey.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to keep it away from the Bear Grylls world and a little bit more onto the Scottish Highlands. Thank you, Tom. Like that. Yeah, <laughs> no urine drinking on uh, on my TV shows. That's for sure. We're drinking single malt in the evenings and enjoying sunsets and deserts on the and then on the top of mountains. That's for sure. Can we also not mention bad grills again, please? Y- yeah, sorry about that. That's fine.
1: Tom, he's, the guest. he's our guest next week. But anyway, you can, you can think about that and mull that over for a moment, shall we? Brian, why whiskey? Tell us a bit about whiskey first. Before we get into everything else, I want to know about you and whiskey because it is a thing. You literally drink it every day. You make a big deal about it. Do you have a deal yeah. with the whiskey people? How are you getting your whiskey in Istanbul? And you, do you get it anywhere in the world? I mean, is it one of those things?
0: Well, you know, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and, and Canadians have a big beer culture. And uh, I remember being a broke university student and one of the senior, uh, one of the senior, they called it like a Don, like your senior supervisor on your floor. He was a PhD student and he he was from Scotland. And he said, look, you know, you seem like a smart young man. You're drinking this terrible, terrible Canadian beer, 7% alcohol. You know, what are you doing to yourself? And he goes, come on in, you know, come over at nine o'clock and I'll show you how to really drink. And he and he brought me like a Glenlivet 12 or Glenfiddich 12. I think that was my first whiskey. And he's like, now try that. That is a two-time distilled single malt from the Highlands of Scotland. And my world was changed when I was like 18 years old. And since then, I've just really enjoyed the taste and I've really enjoyed the kind of handcrafted quality that goes behind a a single malt whiskey. And uh, I've been to you know I've been to Speyside and in, in the Highlands of Scotland. I did all the distillery tours, which only made me fall in love with it more. And I currently do not have a partnership with any whiskey brand. I'm just a connoisseur, and I just love it.
1: Wow. There you go. There's a true lover, yeah. people. Basically, a visit to Scotland will do it. I think it will seal the deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, my ancestry is from Scotland as well. So it was a good chance to go back and see the country for the first time. But I mostly spent the majority of the time in distilleries. So is Trump. So did you make it to the Glen, e- you know, the Glen
2: Eagles, that famous golf club in Scotland? I did. Yeah. Did you make it into their whiskey bar
0: there? I did not.
2: They've got a sort of whiskey bar there, which is floor to ceiling bottles of whiskey. And you can, the the menu, you can have any whiskey you want. They got every single whiskey ever, you know, ever made going back in a hundred years. Also what people, a lot of Americans go to play golf. And basically there, there are a lot of kind of half drunk bottles. So they'll go there, they'll buy a bottle of incredibly expensive whiskey. And then they'll They kind of leave it there with their little name tag on it. And then next time they come over, they'll just, you know, I was just wondering if you never got
0: into this quirky little place and and left a bottle behind for next time. I don't think I've ever left a bottle behind in my whole life, but I also have not been to that particular bar. That's a very good answer. Yeah, no, it's (laughs) it's great. I mean, my crew are pretty much into it as well. So when we, you know, we all have these flasks. I, I make these flasks for my crew. Uh, at the beginning of each season of a television series we're working on. It says like Extreme Trek Season 4 and then their name. And we make sure we load up the flasks before we head out. And and every night after, you know, 20 kilometers or 30 kilometers of trekking and hiking, when we're sitting down flying drones and filming our sunsets, we're always uh, sipping a little on on our flasks and just remembering how lucky we are to be exploring the world. But that was, of course, pre-COVID times. The last kind of three and a half months have been pretty rough.
1: Well, that would explain why half the footage is out of focus. But speaking about that, you, you have a, not just do you enjoy drinking whiskey, but you have, in fact, a rather soft side that you've displayed on um, social media recently, which is that you have adopted a little kitten, very very adorable little kitten, which I wouldn't have taken you for a kitten cat cat man, but um, yeah. you've also called it whiskey, have you not?
0: I have, I have. I love whiskey, the the uh, the beverage, and I also love whiskey the cat. So. This is what happened. I had just come into Istanbul from Ethiopia. You know, the world was kind of closing down around me. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't go back home to my home in Dubai. And I was sitting outside having a whiskey, uh, whiskey drink, uh, watching the sunset over the Bosphorus in Istanbul, which is an incredibly romantic thing to do. And I could hear this terrible crying. And it was, and it was an animal. And at the, you know, I don't care if it's a dog or a cat. Like I love animals with all my heart, and I grew up with animals. I just haven't had them because my lifestyle doesn't really allow it. But I heard this terrible crying, and and I figured it was probably a cat. And I said, well, the mom mom must come back at some stage and bring it some food, and then everything will be fine. So seven hours went by, and uh, the cat was just crying, meow meow. And I was on the sixth floor of a hotel, and I could hear it. And I was like, that's not good. And it was like four degrees Celsius that night. And I was like, should I go down and look for it? And I was like, well, the mom will probably be back. But if it's, if it's still crying in the morning, I'm going to do something. And I woke up, you know, 6am, 6 630. And I went out and the cow was, the kitten was still crying. So I was like, forget it. And I went down and I followed the meows and I found him. He was kind of like behind this shed. Someone had left him. no mother, no brothers and sisters. He fit in the palm of my hand. There's one inner, there's one picture on my Instagram. I've got him just sitting in my hand. And he was about, he was like between seven and eight days old, totally, you know, would have died if I didn't scoop him. And he was covered in fleas, covered in blood because the fleas were just eating him alive. Uh, so I brought him back, you know, defleed him, cleaned him up, uh, started feeding him uh, with a bottle because you can't feed him solid food at that age. And yeah, I just Google searched and in YouTube searched how to rescue a kitten. and uh, And I did it. And you know what, like, it was kind of a project to do, but it was also some good companionship during some dark, dark days. Because because I've now been in Istanbul for you know three and a half months, kind of away from home and in a city where I don't know anyone.
1: What are you going to do yeah. when you get to leave? Are you able to take whiskey with you?
0: I am. Yeah. So I've spent the last couple of weeks figuring out what to do to travel with a kitten uh, internationally, and he's got all his vaccines, and he actually has like a little cat passport, which allows him to travel internationally. So Europe, I'm going to Europe next. Uh, Europe is starting to open up, so I'll go there to do some filming. And uh, yeah, whiskey's coming with us, so he's going to be like the first film crew kitten. And we'll see how that we'll see how that works out.
1: It, it's getting sounding more and more like a Bond movie as the moments go by, <laughs> not just so you in Istanbul right but now. Austin,
0: Austin Powers. I feel like Doctor Evil sometimes when I'm when I've got my kitten in my arms and I'm drinking my I'm drinking my single malt whiskey, exactly.
1: Who needs octopussy when you have whiskey, the cat? I know. Exactly. Um, wow. That, what a sort of strangely romantic. Talking about romance and talking about not fitting your lifestyle, how does romance fit into your lifestyle? I mean, do you have a girlfriend? Do you, what, what, How do you deal with that if you're, you're always on the road?
0: Yeah, you're always on the road, and it, and it, you know, it definitely ruined one of my marriage. I mean, I, I was married for a while, and I'm divorced. And and when you put everything into your career, it's hard to keep a balance. And I definitely didn't keep a very good balance. And I blame myself for it mainly. Uh, and it was really, really hard. And and romance is very hard as well. I mean, you're not home often. You're traveling internationally a lot. Like just for just as an example, for, you know, in pre-COVID times, in the last. Like two and a half years, for example, I'd filmed in Tanzania, Morocco, China, Peru, the USA, Nepal, Italy, Oman, Russia, Iceland, Laos, Papua New Guinea, Bolivia, Argentina, Jordan, Uganda, Philippines, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Mongolia, Taiwan, Thailand, Kyrgyzstan, India, and Hong Kong. That's the last like two and a half, three years. And that was for Extreme Treks, which is on BBC Earth and Amazon Prime, and for Expedition Asia. Obviously, like no relationship can kind of withstand that kind of schedule, and it just kind of all happened at once and and um, yeah, it's not easy, but I'm just dedicated to the work and dedicated to storytelling and, and telling these amazing stories from these amazing parts of the world and i'm I feel blessed every day that I get to wake up and, and do that because it's uh, I think it's an envious position and i'm I've never been happier so
1: look, I mean, there are probably people everywhere who are both shocked by the amount of travel, incredibly envious by the amount of travel, but probably more than anything, you know, I've traveled wide and far and so has Tom. And in fact, Tom and I have traveled together in many places in the world. But I feel that many of those places you've listed, they're not even bucket list. I mean, they're sort of like, I wouldn't have even thought to be able to go to them or travel to them. What has been one of the most extraordinary places you went to that was a surprise?
0: I really had a good time in, in Papua New Guinea. By the way, this is Whiskey the Cat. He's just made an appearance, so he was he was walking around by my feet. Yeah, so he's a little bigger now than when I found him, but he's very healthy and doing well.
1: He's got incredibly hairy ears, I noticed. He,
0: he does have very hairy ears. So I, you know, I I, I get the chance to climb some you know twenty thousand plus meter peaks, which are great. Uh, but I think one of the most amazing experiences I had was in Papua New Guinea, and Papua New Guinea is not a place where a lot of people go, and that's kind of why I wanted to go and explore. And we had this beautiful like 120 kilometer trek along the Kokoda Trail, which uh, if you're Australian, you know the Kokoda Trail really well because that's where the Australian forces went to Papua New Guinea and battled the Japanese back from taking, uh, taking Papua New Guinea essentially and, and saving you know, Australia from Papua New Guinea becoming basically a jumping pad for the Japanese to attack Australia. And it was a terrible World War II battle and we kind of trekked this 120 kilometer trail which was the actual scene for the battle. And I had an amazing guide and we had all these, because we're a film crew and we have so much equipment, we always have to have like 15 or 20 porters to carry all our bags and and gear and everything like that. And our porters were all local Papua New Guineans whose family members and fathers and grandfathers were part of that war, uh, and who also supplied the Australian soldiers and helped with the supply lines along that trail. So it was an incredibly emotional journey and of course, we made a lot of friends in Papua New Guinea, and uh, it was an incredibly educational experience as well. So, And it was really difficult trekking, you know, like rainforest, mud, high humidity, 120 kilometers. I think it was like eight days. It was, it was ruthless, but uh, so, so rewarding.
1: What part of those sorts of trips, I mean, what, what is the magical part? I mean, it, it sounds obviously very romantic when you describe it like that, but I, I've certainly done some trekking before. I went to Nepal once and, you know, I did it. There are there are times, though, when I, I can imagine if, you know, doing it once or twice, it's cool, but you do it all the time. Is it not yeah. incredibly, you mentioned grueling and difficult. Do you ever, like, God, I just wish I could be sitting on a beach in some luxury resort somewhere or chilling out in the Caribbean or something? You're shaking your head, obviously it means no. Why? Well, what is it about it that drives you?
0: I don't take any vacations, actually, because I just love the trekking. And if I could trek for my vacations, that's exactly what I would do. So every time we go out filming, it's it really is just like a holiday. I love it. And every country we go to is different. And I thrive on learning about the country, the landscape, the culture, the people. And every place we go, it's different. It's not like we're doing eight episodes in the United States. We're doing eight episodes on five continents, you know, with different religions, different cultural and ethnic groups. And I just am constantly learning. And I am humbled by the experience. And I, I just feel like I'm such a better person for having tried to go out to these places and learn about this way of life and then share that with my television audience. And that just keeps me going. And I love it.
1: Papua New Guinea, am I correct in thinking that's where they have an indigenous people who are pygmies?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And there's there's cannibal culture there as well. But we didn't we didn't get deep enough into the jungle to find any of those kind of really isolated communities. We were always quite near the coast, quite close to Port Moresby, which is uh, the capital city. But I mean, it's a wild, wild place. And and our Kokoda Trail that we did is is quite an established trail. We didn't really see a lot of other tourists on the trail, but in, in a certain season you'll find tourists. But out in the wild, where normally, there's no civilization,
1: normally Ryan, when you mention sort of cannibalism, it normally puts yeah. the average tourist off. You know, oh FYI, <laughs> be careful if you stray from the path. There's a cannibal. Yeah. You know, just saying, not shocking.
0: Not shocking, no. Um, but we, you know, we were in pretty civilized parts of Papua New Guinea, so it was pretty gentle. But uh, you you can go really far off the map out there and find some crazy stuff for sure. Wow. Okay, yeah, Tom,
2: you and I next trip, Papua New Guinea. No, because if it came push came to shove, I know you give me a shove.
1: I, I actually think that they, they would look at you and they would think there's this delicious, you know, prawn coming down the trail, <laughs> you know, uncooked prawn looking rather appetizing. I can no, I, I can see it right now. We're gonna have to be rescued by Ryan as we're being sort of cooked on the steak.
2: I mean, does that still go on within the culture? I mean, that and Ryan, what is the to basis of cannibalism is it power is it to what is the
0: because they're hungry Tom.
2: yeah you know i just don't
0: know how to speak to that i i've never kind of uh witnessed that in in real life and i, I haven't really done the research to understand cannibalism in any way shape or form but i do know that it does happen on papua new guinea but i didn't have the chance to witness it or really kind of come to terms with understanding it so
2: it's so remote and the, these guys are still they have, they're untouched
0: and, and carrying on with that wow wow yeah Amazing. i think so for sure. and and uh, But, you know, then, then I do other trips where we climb Mackincagua, which is the highest mountain in South America, in Argentina. It's about 7,000 meters, 24,000 feet. And, then, of course, we're filming that all in 4K. And we've got drones up on the mountain. And we're getting all these angles. And it's me and my guide, you know, trying to kind of survive the elements. And it was minus 40 degrees Celsius on the morning we went up for the summit. It's not Everest, but we're trying to really tell a story about the place instead of just climbing the highest thing, you know, we really want to connect with the local people and, and share the story of what it's like to do these things. And and uh, and it's been a formula, I think, that, that's been... Well, it allows me to do what I do. So I'm really happy that, that people kind of tune in every week, and I'm thankful for that audience.
1: How does your crew handle it? I mean, so you're there, you're the host, you're trekking, you're looking heroic and majestic. Meanwhile, they're carrying- Suffering,
0: out, suffering. I'm suffering most cameras of the time. Yeah. And
1: videoing you and, you know, trying to sort of trek with a camera on one arm is no joke. You know, carrying drones and equipment how does the equipment manage as well? I mean, you've got your crew, but your, the equipment, because obviously you just mentioned minus 40, was you know, Fahrenheit, Celsius, it doesn't really matter. We all know that cameras and equipment do, do not work particularly well in those sorts of temperatures. So what kind of equipment are you taking and how does it all go, come together?
0: So we use these big like Sony cameras and we've got tripods and big Sony cameras and we use those kind of in the mornings and then we use them again in the evenings. And those are the beautiful time-lapse shots and the shots of camp and all this kind of stuff. But then during the day when we're trekking, we use these small drones. Then we're also using small SLRs that shoot really, really high quality 4K video. And for the guys to to trek with an SLR over their shoulder uh, and maybe a fixed lens or a small zoom lens is much easier than carrying like a big, big Sony camera. So, you know, obviously they're incredibly tough. My director of photography is Chad Ingram. My second camera operator is Jesse Rosenberg. We've been doing this all around the world for years now. Chad's been with me for a decade, uh, always the same guys. And we're just in a rhythm, man. And uh, we're just constantly constantly traveling and cruising around the world. How are you? You're making Whiskey. another appearance.
1: Whiskey the Cat, yeah. is, you know, I think you, you, Whiskey the Cat might actually steal the show. You may have to have his own show, Whiskey Around the World. And his own Instagram account. It might actually surpass you, Ryan, is all I can say. You know, just be careful. Those hairy ears is what it's all about. Most cute. terrifying place. Ryan And I'm, only, I'm asking you all these questions because it's sort of, you know, I look at everything you do and it, it all looks terrifying to me. But clearly you seem to be quite capable of, of handling it all. Mountain peaks, cannibals, you know, you name it. Where, where, what was the most terrifying place you've been to? Or have you come across a scary moment?
0: I think we had a scary moment in Russia. So we were climbing Mount Elbrus, which is one of the highest mountains in, in Europe. It's higher than Mount Blanc. And it's just on the border, uh, southern Russian border uh, with Georgia about 5,700 meters above sea level. It's like 17, 18,000 feet. And we got up around 5,000 meters and we were doing like a a acclimatization day. So we went from about 4,500 meters up to 5,000 meters and we're going to go back down. We got up to about 5,000 meters and we just got caught in this like cloud. And that was kind of terrifying because it was, we were in the middle of an electrical storm and that's never happened to us before. So there was like lightning, but it was like at eye level and it was kind of happening in front of us. And of course, We're wearing like steel crampons. We have like ice axes. Uh, We have uh, harnesses and belts on. So we were kind of covered in metal, which is not good. So we had to actually take off all of our stuff and kind of bury it in the snow with a mental note to pick it up another day. And we kind of just ran down 500 meters back down to camp in the middle of an electrical storm. And it was, you could like feel it. You could feel the electricity in the air. So that's probably the most uncomfortable thing that I've done. And, and you know what, for all the climbing adventures and all the cannibalism and all the remote parts of the world, Mother Nature still is the scariest thing that I've ever come across.
2: One of my scariest moments ever was walking in the highlands of Scotland. I'm to your whiskey. And I was and I was with a friend of mine and we were doing a kind of 12-mile walk to the nearest town. From where we, were. we were right up, we were in the hills. And on this track, we were going down the track and exactly the same, I mean, it wasn't. We were at five thousand meters in an electrical storm, but suddenly this lightning storm started, and it's starting to hit the the mountains around us. And actually, you're standing there, and you are literally the most only upright thing for as far as you can see. And I think we crouched down into a kind of to try and get us as
0: close to the ground to, to dissipate the lightning. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, you, there's nothing yeah. you can do about it. And and yeah. and it's the only time I've ever been caught in a lightning storm, but it, it was enough to scare yeah. scare me really good. So. You know, that's probably one of the most dangerous situations we've been in. My mom likes to say I have a dangerous job, but actually I kind of just try to tell her all the time. that My TV show is just about being uncomfortable. Like, you know, trekking through the jungles of Papua New Guinea, it's a little uncomfortable. It's hot, it's sticky, it's muddy, it rains six times a day. You know, going up to 24,000 feet or 7,000 meters of that Kincagua, minus 40 degrees Celsius, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. I wouldn't call it like life-threatening. You know, if you manage the risks and you have a good guide, and we always have local guides, that's part of our story. I I, the worst thing I can do as a human being is travel around the world and make people think I'm an expert about everything everywhere. And I hate that kind of television. I am a humble man. I am a good traveler. But when I go into a new country I've never been to, I need a local guide to tell me what when it's going to rain, what we need to do, when we need to get shelter, when we need to speed up, when we can slow down and enjoy the scenery. And this is really crucial. So this the guide from the place, that we are is always a key part of the show and, and essentially a second presenter. And I, and I listen to them always.
2: Maybe the Russian guide wasn't
0: up too much. The Russian guide was just as scared as we were because that cloud came in in a hurry. So uh, that was a wild one, but... um... You
1: have to be careful where you are, what's going on, even with your guides, right? So for example, what people would least expect to happen on a show like America's Next Top Model, which is the show that I worked on for so long, you know, we traveled all over the world, but to completely the opposite places to where you travel in a completely different way and style. But we were in Japan, and the Yakuza, is that the name of the mafia, the Yakuza? Yeah. Somehow we had signed a deal, not with the Yakuza exactly, but with somebody who was a fixer, who was helping us get into places, making sure that we could shoot on certain roads and, and, and have, our, have access to things in Tokyo. And, you know, if yeah. you ever been to Tokyo, and for those who haven't, the road signs are all in Japanese, which of course it's in Japan. However, like anywhere else in the world, they use the English language or they use you know alphabets. So you can sort of read a map and know where you are. In Japan, they don't do that. It's simply purely in Japanese um, symbols and what have you. And so you can't, it's very, very hard for someone who doesn't read Japanese or was not educated to understand and look at them to actually know where they are. So we got lost quite regularly. And at one point, as a crew, and I myself was, was there, I was shooting something, the Yakuza, uh, a group of Yakuza with tattoos and the whole nine yards, about seven or eight of them came up to us and apparently we didn't have whatever papers that they wanted, we were meant to have to be there and we hadn't got the approval and our fixer and a full on fight broke out. Um, and it got so crazy and so bad. Security had to be called in, and the whole production um, was 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 basically ground to a halt for over 24 hours. Which on a show like America's Next Top Model, cost a fortune. And none right. of this actually made it into the show. No one really heard about this. It wasn't really press. This might even be the first time everyone's ever heard about it. But it was extraordinary. And so, to my point is, you you have to also be careful as to who you're doing deals with, the fixes, and also the you know the local sort of mafias that are that often run countries when you when you get into certain situations in certain places you have to deal with a lot of unsavory characters and it's not always as easy so anyway that, that just sort of all of a sudden came to my mind when we were talking crazy stories I'm like whoa wait a second I know how that can be now I want to jump on you've traveled with your brother too don't you uh
0: no I I did so uh in 2010, I made my transition from being a New York Times photographer to being a television presenter, and, and the TV show that I, I chose to make that leap was called Tough Rides China. And I decided to bring in my brother for that, where, where we decided, we, we tried to ride motorcycles all the way around China, and we did, uh, 65 days, about 18,000 kilometers, nice. and we made a series called Tough Rides China, six episodes, and we set Guinness, uh, Guinness World Record for the longest uh, single motorcycle trip around one country without backtracking. Or overlapping and then we did another one in india after india he's like forget it i want to have a normal life and he you know he was married and he had a you know he started up his own business and has his wife and kid and he kind of calmed down whereas i continued my journey with the circus as it's known within travel television you know i'm just on the road all the time and uh and he kind of chose a more simple life perhaps but he's very happy
1: Wait a second, you just basically blew that off and then just quickly said how you, you broke a world record, you got a Guinness world record, as you traveled around China on a motorcycle for 64 days doing 18,000 kilometers, 12,000 miles. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just, just take it back a second here. That is yep. crazy. There's got to be a ridiculous stories. I mean, who does that? First of all, how do you even get permission to ride around China on a motorbike? Uh, without, I mean, and who's there to tell you it's a Guinness Book Guinness record anyway? I mean, I thought you had to have officials and things. I, did they not have an officials? I mean, how, does, how so, do you actually let, you know, register that record?
0: I really wanted to make a TV show and no one wanted to help me. And I went out to all the broadcasters that I now currently work with. And they all said no 10 years ago. Uh, nowadays, they're much more accommodating. But, but uh, back in the day, no one wanted to work with me because I never made television, never produced anything, never directed anything, never hosted anything. But I had some good ideas. And uh, so I decided to fund my first TV show on my own. And it was a huge stretch and it was a huge risk. But uh, you never learn faster than when you spend your own money. And my brother was an amazing uh, companion on that journey. And yeah, with regards to permissions and all that, we just went for it. Totally low budget documentary style, two brothers, two motorcycles. Uh, I was the China expert because i had lived in China for about 10 years by that time, working for the New York Times covering China. And he had never been to China before. So we had this kind of dynamic as... Him seeing it for the first time and me kind of telling him what was going on. And uh he must have loved that. He loved it. He loved it. And I he loved was it. He having too. you
1: tell him what was going on the whole time. I can just it, see it. it yeah. So this is the other story. Exactly. Why he didn't want to do another show with you.
0: Well, we did India after that. And India was harder, but it was amazing. And and we ended up making a TV show out of it. And that kind of jump started my my career. And it, it was uh it was an amazing adventure and it, it gave me a chance to make television uh, as a career. And I'm forever thankful for that.
1: Do you come across lots of people that want to do what you're doing? I mean, do people sort of say, look, I'd, I'd like to trek around the world and be paid for it? Or how do I get into this? How, what do you tell people as far as, I mean, But that story already, just in itself, gives people inspiration to sort of get out there and basically do it yourself. If you can't do it, if you can, no one else is going to pay you, you've got to get up there and you know, use your own initiative, use your own you know, whatever funds, but basically put yourself in harm's way or put yourself right there in the picture and make it happen. Is that your advice? I mean, what do you tell people?
0: You know, I mean, Nigel, I, I had the wonderful opportunity of interviewing you a few weeks ago for my COVID calls. And, and I got to learn about how you made the leap from being a model to a photographer. And how you worked with models and getting them shoots when they weren't getting jobs and helping them get test shoots, and how you reached out and you built out this network of models that you could shoot and you built that whole initiative on your own. And I remember this conversation, it was just a few weeks ago. And, and it's the same in television. No one will help you make something on your own. It can cost you $200, it can cost you $20,000, it can cost you $200,000. Doesn't matter. Find something you wanna make. Make it on your own, show it to people, use that to get a real job, use that to get a real job, use that to get a real job. But if you don't take the first step, then you're going to be stuck doing whatever you're doing. And then it's going to be, I wish I did this when I was that age. And it, that's the way it is. Like you just have to really take that initiative and take that risk and be like, this is what I want to do. And then be dedicated to it. There's no better feeling in the world than calling someone's bluff. About them wanting to work with you and being like, "I'm doing this no matter what." You can get on board now, or you can get on board later. And I just have that kind of determination and initiative, where I'm making stuff all the time, and I want to work with people. But if they're not willing to work, I'm making it on my own, and I'll sell it later, and I'm on to the next thing, and we're just rolling.
2: Not, no, no, so, something went horribly wrong then in that case. You should have had a bit of Ryan's advice because you went from television, and now we're doing the uh,
0: radio. <laughs> now we're doing radio. I'm stuck in Istanbul, so, I mean, my life has been uh, severely altered. We can't blame you, but you have little option. You know,
2: you're sitting there and you're doing the best you can. Yeah.
1: First of all, Tom, hate to tell you this is not radio, but you see, the thing is, with, I can't get Tom out of the Dark Ages. He sort of lives in no. the sort of 1930s, 1940s, with sort of radio antennas, He's, you know, kind of... Where is everything? I can't connect. I can't connect. Uh, Tom, this is a podcast, for God's sakes. Get with the times, old boy. And by the way, neither you or I are getting younger or prettier. So I thought as long as our voices stay the same, we could go on to a podcast and we could just grow old gracefully and no one would ever have to see what we look like. It's perfect. I'm improving. You I'm have, have improving. a face for radio, as they say. And you know, there we this go. Is a Perfect place.
2: On that note,
0: I don't know where we go from there.
2: Well, I could chuck an insult back at night. But I won't. I'll let that one slide. We did a podcast the other day, and I was a little hard on him. So I'm going to try and like I'm just trying to go gently
0: on him tonight.
1: I'm sensitive.
0: I feel like I'm a third wheel here. I mean, should I give you guys some space? You want me to sign off and go? Come back in ten minutes.
1: No, you, you can stay right where you are, Ryan, in your prison cell in Istanbul. Um, you have to understand that Tom and I just created Shaken and Stirred just so, like the two grumpy old men, woold Astoria from The Muppet Show. We could basically have a cocktail with each other, one in England, one in New York, and sort of right. pretend to interview guests when really we just get quietly drunk on the side. That's actually what go. Shaken and Stirred is all about. And that's what we do. And, you know, occasionally we have entertaining guests like yourself who, we feel sorry for. And you know, we kind of you know, want to help them out and potentially you know, notify the local embassy that they're stuck in a country and drinking urine out of a beaker. And which is, again, what he's holding up, everybody. You can't see what's happening, but he's holding up a urine sample once again.
0: I am glad to be part of this tradition.
1: We're glad to have you. So tell us, Ryan, bucket list. Where do you still want to go? What is You just named every outlawed country in the world that you've just been to. Where now?
0: With my current television production budgets, I do not have the opportunity to go to Antarctica or Greenland or the Arctic. And these are places that I would desperately like to film and explore and tell stories about. So, you know, these are some of the most expensive places in the world to visit both logistically and and, I mean, just logistically, actually, that's the big, the big issue. So I'd really like to do the polls. And I'd really like to explore Greenland and, uh, and these kind of just always seem beyond our reach. So if there's any sponsors out there who want to get behind a single malt whiskey drinker with a cat, a kitten, actually a kitten, uh, then uh, hop on board and I'll be the first guy to on the plane to Antarctica.
1: I've actually done a shoot in the, in the, the arctic so you know oh, wow like i said our, you know our budgets are different than yours what can i say you know you know if i'm not trying to one up you or anything but you know clearly um helicoptered up there you know brought my models out you know yeah. arctic and what have you did the shoot and yeah and it's not all that it's cracked up to be oh boy it's just a lot of ice you know clearly I'm not, I'm not cut out to be the the explorer type am i
0: i, I think you've got it nigel i mean you know we we've we've had a few conversations public and private and i think you could turn that knob in, in a minute but you've got a great thing going you you know you, you take photographs of people you're on television i think you, i mean i'm i want to transition to what you do eventually i mean i don't i can't keep doing what i'm doing for for too much longer i mean i'm i'm uh, it's getting harder every year But so you basically want to retire is what you're saying i want to retire into what nigel does that would be amazing
2: yeah, effect what very little. Build stone walls and put pictures of himself holding rocks on Instagram looking kind of like
0: Hey, he was do you see him with the axe cutting the logs? I, I've been following him on Instagram this whole lockdown. This guy's killing. Oh
2: god, it. he hasn't been doing that. No, thank God. Thank I God I never watched America's Next Top model either. So I have no idea what I've missed, but I'm sure.
0: I'm watching Nigel on his rowing machine every day. That's how excited I am to follow this man. I'm I'm I a super fan. <laughs> Am I a super fan? I mean, should we turn this interview around and learn more about Nigel?
1: Okay, so now this has gone from being you know, mildly entertaining to I feel like I need to call, I need to call the police and, and, and actually register a stalker on my own show. And for all the rest of you, I actually Here's found Tom underneath one of the rocks whilst I was building my stone wall. So if you wonder where right. he's been all this time, it's been under a rock. Hence, he does not <laughs> know anything about America's Next Top Model or any of the other great stuff that I've done in my career. But, um, you know, oh. that's why I like him, because he hold, you know, keeps everything steady and, you know, down the straight and narrow, don't you, Tom? Oh, wow. Ignore it. Just,
0: Just ignore. ignore it. Just oh, ignore that. <laughs>
1: So take us back now. I mentioned the fact that you are in Istanbul. Obviously, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, counting the days, you're drinking your whiskey. Did you bring your whiskey with you? What are they drinking in Istanbul? What's going on there? What's the situation there?
0: So I was filming my television series, Extreme Treks, with BBC Earth in Ethiopia in mid-March. And I I, I knew it was a risk going to Ethiopia because COVID was spreading. Uh, It had already kind of devastated Italy by mid-March. And I just felt like getting out into the mountains for two weeks would have been a great way to just turn off the news and self-isolate and just be alone. So going to Ethiopia was a bit of a risk, but I still felt like it was a, a decent risk. And we got out to Ethiopia and we got out to Gondar, which is in the north. And we we did this trek through the Simeon Mountains along the border with South Sudan. And we didn't see any people for five or six days. And it was just gorgeous. And and of course, during this time, the world was burning, but we weren't really online or connected. And, and then I got up to the top of this pass on, uh, near this mountain that we were going, and our guide stopped, and he said, "Hey, guys, we'll have a signal here. You guys should check your phones and just, you know, write a loved one or something." And uh, so I checked my phone, and the world had closed. This was on March 19th. The US. had closed their borders to Europe. The United Arab Emirates had closed their borders, which is where I live in Dubai. Europe had closed their borders, and I was like, "Whoa! Episode is over. Time to get a car. Where's the nearest road? So we called a driver. We hiked six hours to the nearest road, drove straight back to Addis Ababa. And during that whole time, I didn't know where I was going to go because I didn't want to go back to Canada because I didn't know if I was carrying something or what was going on. I couldn't go back to my home in Dubai. So Istanbul was still open, Turkey was still open, and it was just the shortest flight. And Istanbul is a great city with wonderful people and a great culture, and I really liked it here. So I just was like, you know what, I'm coming to Istanbul. So I flew to Istanbul, that was, I arrived 7 a.m. March 21st, and I've been here ever since. And I didn't bring any whiskey with me. Luckily, the shops here are stocked with wonderful whiskey, a single malt whiskey option. Is it
1: not a Muslim country?
0: It is a Muslim country, but they do take their dedication to Islam a bit less seriously. The big drink here is Raki, R-A-K-I. It looks kind of like a vodka but it tastes different. I don't know really how to explain the taste, but that's the local beverage of choice for hard alcohol. Most people just drink a lot of beer.
1: Can you do yeah. me a favor? Can you bring me back some Rocky?
0: Yes. When, when will the USA be open for me to travel from Istanbul to you in upper upstate New York?
1: I have no idea. I've you've now given away my secret location. For goodness. I'm
0: sorry, I'm sorry. So what's it like in
2: Tennessee? <laughs> <laughs> no, has got some pretty funky stalkers. <laughs> I mean, over the years, he's had some pretty weird, he's had some, I mean, obviously, given the kind of line of business he's been in, you're going to attract some real problematic individuals. Luckily, we're now doing this podcast together, so he's kind of like, I almost feel like he's kind of like evolved and back on the straight and narrow, but in the past, my God, some of the photographs he's been sent by some of his fans, and I'm not talking about women, I'm talking about the male fans. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's extremely popular. You know, he's a sort of gay icon. I would, not icons a bit strong, you have basically given it away because there are very few places he can go now in upstate New York. Uh, was it upstate New York? It wasn't near Woodstock, was it?
1: No, yeah. it was no, nowhere near Woodstock. And we never <laughs> geotag anything. We never geotag no. anything on this show or in my probably no, I'm just kidding. I live upstate New York, as I mentioned, actually. Things are very good here, thank God. Things are are calming down, and we are doing very, very well. So that is great. New York is doing very well. When will you be leaving Istanbul? What does that look like right now?
0: So yeah, so I got here on March 21st. It's been a long haul. You know, Istanbul has weathered the storm pretty well, I feel. There's, you know, a lot of cases in in Turkey, but there's a lot of people in Turkey, and I I don't really follow the local news. I stopped watching the news about a week after I got here, because I just couldn't stomach it. So I just wake up every morning, do my exercises and then try to just carry on and forward think on to what I can do next. You could be a politician
1: with that last comment, by the way. You know, I, I don't know about how bad it is here, but there are a lot of people in Turkey and there are a lot of cases, but I don't know what that means. I love that. No. That's you, straight, you, yeah.
2: You know, if you haven't been watching the news, actually, in the last couple of days, Erdogan, who's obviously the president, has done something really quite controversial. He's- The Hagia sophia
0: Yeah. You say so you have, have heard a little bit of news. Yeah. And what's the view over there on on that? So uh, originally, the Hagia Sophia was created as a a place of Christian worship. And then several centuries later, it was a place of Muslim worship. And then uh, Ataturk, who was the secular leader of Turkey in the 1920s and 30s, he uh, created the Hagia Sophia as a religious neutral museum. Museum. Yeah. Yeah. And now I think for Ataturk to then uh, now start to, to allow Muslim prayer the Hagia Sophia, you know, goes really against Ataturk and his secular vision of what Turkey should be. And wow, I mean, now I'm wearing my political science cap, which I studied at the University of Toronto. But um, I don't know, every single thing in the news these days just feels like lowbrow vote getting. You know, whether it's the United States or England or Russia or Turkey or wherever, it just feels like the lowest common denominator of leadership and the weakest people trying to get the most amount of votes and doing the most ridiculous things possible. And I'm sad to say that's the world we live in today. And uh, it's really a pathetic state of affairs for the human civilization. I love Wow, it, that got serious. That I got serious. Bad,
1: man. This is what we call shaken and stirred, people. We're talking about Turkey. We're talking about trekking. We're talking about politics. Well,
0: Ni- Nigel and Tom, you guys have to know this. Like, I'm stateless. You know I'm I'm very I feel very fortunate to have a Canadian passport. I'm a very proud Canadian, but I left Canada at the age of 22 to explore the world. And the world is not peaches and cream. It's a mess. And you know, the more countries you travel in, you meet amazing people, but the governments that govern these people are atrocious. And and one of the things I always try to do in my shows and one of the things I always try to do in my speaking events and and everything is you have to separate the government that governs the people from the actual people. And the people in Turkey have been amazing. And, and I've, I've loved everyone I've met in Istanbul. And, and the people who have worked in the pharmacies and the grocery stores during the lockdown are national heroes because they put themselves in the line of danger, nine to five, making sure we can eat and making sure we can get our, our vitamins or, or whatever else we need from the pharmacies. But at the political level, it's just, it's just a mess. And and I and I just see that everywhere I go. I'm not inspired by any political leadership in any country I've ever been to. And I I just I, I feel like it should be different, don't you? I mean, shouldn't leaders lead in times of challenge, in so times maybe of that trouble? It needs
1: to be your next show. Your next show maybe. needs to be discovering the country that everyone should actually live in. Where where are they getting it right? Is it Norway? Is it Sweden? Is it one of the countries Germany? where currently Apparently, you know, people are happiest. Yeah. Happiness, of course, is not equated to how much money you've got or whatever. It's to do with you're just you're a, how at one with yourself are you, how comfortable you are with your own, just with exactly who you are as a person, without always trying to be someone else, trying to be richer, trying to be better, you know, the sort of impossible dream.
0: But Nigel, I can tell you that I would be much happier if Extreme Treks, my TV show, had America's Next Top Model budget. That would make me genuinely happier. Can you pull some strings?
1: You know, anything is possible. Why don't we club together and create? You might have to have him
0: coming with you. Extreme
1: cocktails <laughs> would, around the world. I would,
0: I would love it. We should. The three of us should make a show just about drinking and being awesome everywhere. Is everywhere. that too conceited to say? No, I think it's
1: a fabulous show. We go. We start tomorrow. We head off. You know, and we'll map each other as we come together in no, some. No. St-
2: the problem is when you're when you're in the back of nowhere. You're in Ulaanbaatar, and you're in some village, and then someone suddenly appears and comes up and, start, and points and goes, Nigel Barker, because that's basically what happens to him, because people actually used to watch that show, America's Next Top Model, apparently. He's, unfortunately, he would he would sidetrack any kind of collaboration. He's still recognized by the grannies of Ulaanbaatar. What you don't no,
1: realize is, is that in many countries around the world, America's Next Top Model is just on season two. So I still have decades of fame to go in like Southern Europe and Eastern Bloc countries.
0: Never underestimate the spending power of the grannies in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and that's going to lead to Nigel's next cosmetic deal.
1: Thank you. I'm not quite sure what that means or how shady that comment was. But before we let you go, Ryan, because that's exactly what I'm about to do, because I think I need to let you back with your prison guard in Istanbul, who I'm sure is your time is probably up at this point. Last orders. It's rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready.
0: All right. Car or motorbike? Motorcycle. Dennis World Record, China. (laughs)
1: Look at him. Not just, <laughs> just, just, just yes or no. Okay, just just Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, it's just unbelievable.
0: What's your favorite thing you've ever eaten? Uh, sheep brain in Marrakesh, Morocco. That's your favorite thing?
1: Oh, my God. The one
0: you left Canada. It's the most sexy thing I've ever eaten, that's for sure. Oof. Okay. Oof. What's the country with
1: the best-looking people?
0: I, I have to say the Nordics would be pretty, uh, pretty much up there. You know, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, uh, Finland. Wow. Like you know, pretty, pretty good looking people, healthy. Uh, do I have to pick a country? I mean, I guess it would be Denmark.
1: Okay, you, just, pick- you listed four countries and that Denmark wasn't one of them and then you just threw Denmark in at the end. All right, in the action movie of your life, who would you like to play you?
0: Well, the greatest action star of all time is Tom Cruise. I mean, that guy runs and jumps and breaks his ankle and does every stunt by himself. So even though I might not associate myself with everything that Tom Cruise associates, himself with what are you saying what are you insinuating i'm, I'm not going to insinuate anything but he is the greatest action star of all time
1: and you kind of look like him
0: i I'm, thank you i mean he's a handsome guy and, and uh he's a great producer and i mean it, what he's done in the last 30 years is amazing and uh, considering how small he is as well i mean he's absolutely tiny yeah he's like five foot five
2: <laughs> no less god that's generous i would have said he's less than that I mean.
1: Although he fits on your TV screen, Tom, he is, in fact, bigger than the television screen. You understand that.
0: There you go. There you go. All right. <laughs> there you Final go. question. Shaken or stirred? No, Nigel, the question is wrong. It's straight. No ice. Ooh. Ooh, good answer. I'll have a single malt, double, no ice. Straight. Neat. It's not shaken or stirred. It's neat. There you go, people. Did I ruin straight, that for you?
1: Straight and neat is what most Canadians like to describe it by. Look, that's fantastic. We, you've heard it from Ryan in his prison cell in Istanbul. Ryan, we hope you get released soon. We miss you. The world misses you. This is Shaken and Stirred. Everybody, you can check out Shaken and Stirred um, just about anywhere you can find a great podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Show and uh, follow Ryan. Ryan, where can people hear your podcast?
0: So you just go to my website, which is ryanpyle.com, or follow me on Instagram, which is at ryanpyle, R-Y-A-N-P-Y-L-E, and everything is there. And uh, Nigel and Tom, I, I, you know, to be able to spend this much time with two such distinguished gentlemen is an honor and a privilege, and I'm thankful. And I look forward to having a drink with both of you very soon.
1: A pleasure. It's me. all ours. Absolutely. Cheers. Chin chin. Good health. Everybody take care. This was Shaken and Stirred.